Good evening, humans. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Bedtime Banshee podcast, the show that brings you horrifying but true stories from all over the world. Every week, we look at strange and possibly disgusting facts about a strange and possibly disgusting place, dig up an awful idea from the history books, find out what's weird and wonderful in the headlines, and last but certainly not least, I'll tell you a very disturbing bedtime story. First things first, your strange and disgusting tale about a strange and disgusting place. This week, we're looking at Walt Disney's Disneyland Resorts, marketed to millions as the happiest place on Earth. But is it really? Here is just a small selection of horrible, horrible facts about Disneyland parks. On May 15, 1964, a 15-year-old boy from Long Beach, California was injured after he stood up in the Matterhorn bobsleds and fell out. It was reported that his restraint was undone by his ride companion. He died three days later as a result of those injuries. This was Disneyland's first fatality. In August 1967, a 16-year-old boy from Hawthorne, California was killed while jumping between two people mover cars as the ride was passing through a tunnel. He stumbled and fell onto the track where an oncoming train of cars crushed him beneath its wheels, dragging his body a few hundred feet before it was finally stopped by a ride operator. At the time, the People Mover attraction had only been open for one month. In 1974, 18-year-old Debbie Stone had the dubious honor of becoming the first Disney employee to die on the job. Following a performance of America Sings, a ride with a rotating stage, Debbie became trapped by a moving wall and was crushed to death. The ride was closed for two days, just long enough to scrub away the bloodstains before reopening again to delight and excite young Disney fans. Still in 1974, while on holiday at Disney's Polynesian Village Resort, John Lennon signed the legal documentation that would dissolve the Beatles, officially bringing the Fab Four to an end on Disneyland property. On January 3, 1984, a 48-year-old woman was killed and decapitated when she was thrown from a Matterhorn bobsled car and struck by the next oncoming bobsled. The spot where she was killed is now called Dolly's Drop by cast members. An investigation found that her seatbelt was not buckled. It is unclear whether the victim deliberately unfastened her belt or if the seatbelt malfunctioned. On Christmas Eve 1998, a heavy metal cleat fastened to the hull of the sailing ship Columbia tore loose, striking an employee and two park guests. One of these guests, a 33-year-old man, died of his head injuries. 
Disney had to face a ton of criticism for this incident due to its alleged policy of restricting park access to outside medical professionals in a bid to prevent other visitors from being frightened. On September 22, 2000, a four-year-old boy fell out of his vehicle in the Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin ride and was dragged underneath the car, causing serious internal injuries, cardiac arrest, and brain damage. Records showed that more than five minutes had passed between the time the boy fell out of the vehicle and emergency personnel were contacted. Disney eventually settled with the victim's family, but they were not required to accept blame. The little boy never fully recovered from his injuries, and he died in January 2009. Also, as recently as 2001, laundering standards of Disney's company-issue underwear were so poor that Disney Park employees were regularly given smelly, stained undies as well as scabies and pubic lice. The Teamsters Union had to campaign for months just to convince management to allow their employees to wash their underwear at home. Now it's time to examine an awful idea that affected the course of history. Dow Chemical Company scientist Ray McIntyre invented foamed polystyrene, also known as styrofoam, in 1947. McIntyre said his invention of foamed polystyrene was purely accidental. His invention came about as he was trying to find a flexible electrical insulator around the time of World War II. Polystyrene, which had already been invented, was a good insulator, but it was too brittle. McIntyre tried to make a new rubber-like polymer by combining styrene with a volatile liquid called isobutylene under pressure. The result was a foam polystyrene 30 times lighter than regular polystyrene. The Dow Chemical Company introduced styrofoam trademarked products to the United States in 1954. Most of us recognize polystyrene in the form of takeaway boxes, beverage cups, and protective packaging. But the versatility of this product doesn't outweigh the fact that styrene, one of 57 chemicals released during the creation of styrofoam, has been deemed by the Environmental Protection Agency as a possible carcinogen. Yes, styrofoam can keep your drinks cold, but it might also give you cancer. Styrofoam containers are commonly used for takeout food, but chemicals can leach into it and contaminate that food, affecting human health and reproductive systems. This effect is heightened if food is reheated while still in the container. The manufacturing process also uses hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, which negatively impact the ozone layer and climate change. Styrofoam is non-biodegradable, and it appears to last forever. This, combined with the fact that styrofoam floats, means that massive amounts of polystyrene have accumulated along coastlines and waterways, and is now considered one of the main components contributing to the marine debris environmental crisis affecting the world today.
Now it's time to look at the craziest story making the headlines this week. They say that everyone has a different way of grieving over the loss of a loved one, but it's not often that what a person needs most to get through the difficult passing of a family member is to eat their remains along with a tall glass of milk. And yet that's exactly what one California teen did earlier this month. She took her dearly departed granddaddy's cremated remains and baked them into a batch of fresh cookies. She and another student reportedly then handed out the cookies to students at their school. A fellow student later told the local newspaper how, when he took a bite out of his strangely sandy biscuit, one of the girls whispered to him that she had added a secret ingredient. In a hilarious role reversal, he was worried that he'd been dosed with some kind of drug, only to later find out that he'd consumed an entirely different kind of angel dust. As it turned out, the teen and her friend thought it would be a fitting send-off for Grandpapa to add him to the cookies and share them with her friends. Charming. All in all, at least nine teens ate gritty granddaddy cookies, some of them having been tricked into it, others actually volunteering to eat the cremated cookies with full knowledge of their contents. Turns out, it wasn't actually that hard to get your hands on the remains of this late, great-tasting man. Previously, the teen had apparently offered one student a handful of the ashes in exchange for switching seats in class. And honestly, from that point on, they really should have expected that any future dealings with her would come with a side of dead grandpa's ashes. After the school found out about the cookie incident, the police were brought in to open a case against the dead granddad baker. But because none of the kids actually got sick, Lieutenant Paul Doroshov decided to drop it, reasoning that even if anyone insisted on prosecuting the girl, they wouldn't know what crime to charge her with. This opens up a whole new interesting debate about cannibalism. Does it still count if it's ashes? Now at last, it's time for the final segment of the show, the bedtime story that will make sure you never sleep again. The French Quarter of New Orleans has for many centuries been the focus of ghost stories and black magic, but at times its real-life residents could prove to be much more terrifying. Born in 1787 into an influential white Creole family, Delphine McCarty was raised with some of the very best things life had to offer at the time. The beautiful young socialite blended in with her upper-class peers as effortlessly as she wove herself through three marriages, first to a Spanish diplomat, then a prominent banker, and finally to the city's only dentist, Dr. Louis Lalaurie. In 1831, although it was uncommon at the time, Delphine purchased a property in her own name at 1140 Rue Royale. She proceeded to build the mansion of her dreams, and she moved in with her husband and daughters soon after it was finished. While it appeared rather modest from the outside, on the inside the three-story building was lavishly decorated with carved mahogany wood massive chandeliers and fabrics imported from Asia. In that old southern style, 
The mansion housed separate slave quarters on the top floor. Delphine's home became the focal point of New Orleans high society. She threw parties and balls where guests, like her cousin the mayor, dined on fine European china and admired the famous paintings on her walls. Invitations to her famous galas became incredibly coveted items among socialites in New Orleans. But beneath the grandiose surface existed an evil mind that would expose itself in due time. Rumours began to spread of Delphine's short temper and mistreatment of her slaves. Basically, you know it's bad when local authorities are sent to inspect your household to make sure you're following whatever weak-ass laws they had to protect slaves in the 1800s. Apparently they couldn't find anything wrong, but neighbours still continued to suspect that something sinister was happening on the top floor. Delphine's slaves would come and go far too quickly. One day, neighbours heard a commotion in the LaLaurie backyard. Delphine's 12-year-old slave, Leah, had hit a snag while combing her mistress's hair, and Delphine was not happy about it. The older woman chased the girl down to the courtyard, then the girl turned and ran back up to the top floor. Leah backed herself up against the balcony railing in an attempt to avoid punishment, but she ended up falling, although some say she threw herself to the pavement below and died. The LaLauries hurried to collect the girl's body and bury her on their property, but the damage to their reputation was done. Eventually, Delphine was arrested, her slaves put up for auction. Being rich and influential, Delphine was of course able to escape punishment by paying a fine. As for her slaves, she asked her relatives to buy them and return them to her, which of course they happily obliged. However, her stature in Upper Creole society began to spiral downward. Turning their noses at the whiff of scandal, her neighbours began to decline party invitations. On April 10th, 1834, a fire broke out in the LaLaurie kitchen. Fire marshals rushed to stop the blaze and found an elderly woman chained to the room's fireplace. They immediately cut her free and hurried her to safety only to hear her confess that she had started the fire as a suicide attempt. She said Delphine had threatened to take her up to the top floor. According to the elderly cook, any slave who was taken upstairs never returned. Neighbours who had come over to help put out the fire started wondering why Delphine's servants weren't assisting the fire marshals. When Delphine heard this, she famously replied, Never mind the servants, save my valuables. This way, gentlemen, this way. But after hearing the old cook's story, the authorities knew they had to keep searching the house. They went right to the top floor, broke down the doors, and came face to face with the grisly sight. Over a dozen slaves, some chained to the wall, others in cages. According to newspaper stories, body parts were scattered across the floor, organs and heads piled in buckets. Still more were stretched by their limbs, barely hanging on to life. The once helpful group of neighbours morphed into a self-righteous, ferocious mob, seemingly appalled at the atrocities committed on their own street. 
Maybe they were appalled. Maybe they just had their eye on some of those lovely paintings decorating the house because they proceeded to ransack the mansion. Delphine's husband, Louis, hadn't been home when the fire started. He must have heard about the rioting, though, because he left the area and was never heard from again. Delphine herself fled immediately to the port, jumping on a ship and leaving behind the life of glamour, wealth and racist traditions of New Orleans forever. Little is known of her after that. Records show she died in Paris in 1849, although her body was later exhumed and moved back to New Orleans. Today, ghost stories are still told about the unfortunate slaves who died in the Lalaurie mansion, and the now private home is a stop on numerous haunted tours of the city. That's all for this week's episode. And remember, if you found it deeply awful and disturbing, do remember to leave a review on iTunes or tweet us at Bedtime Banshee if you'd like a shout-out on the show. Thanks very much to superfans Gazelle and Clauklau who have been cheering the Bedtime Banshee on since the very beginning. Thanks as well to Stefan from the ridiculously hilarious comedy advice podcast Hyperbole. Since we're about a week away from Halloween, this is the overly commercialized season for overdosing on pumpkin spice lattes, trick-or-treating, and dogs wearing adorably cute costumes. So just in case you're thinking there's no reason to be scared, just remember the bedtime banshee's call. And repeat after me, the world is a horrible place. The world is a horrible place. The world is a horrible place. Until next week, goodbye.